While the kids are leaving, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Still some confusion here. All right. The Church Bible, if you're following along in that one, you'll find that on page 1030. I encourage you to follow along in a Bible. If not your own, then one of the ones in the row in front of you. All right, let's give our attention to God's word being read together. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove. And discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And I invite you to pray with me in preparation. Father, your sheep need to be fed. And we are fed by your living and active word, the daily bread, which is more than physical bread, but the the food of your word. And Father, as the one entrusted with this important responsibility, I am weak to the task. Humanly speaking, I have nothing to offer. And so we're asking, Father, that by your spirit, you would speak your living and active word to our hearts. And so accomplish in us what no man can do, but only your spirit can do by the power of your word. And as the messenger of this truth, Father, I pray that I would not get in the way of that. That um, only what is needful for your people will be heard. And what is unnecessary will just blow away like chaff in the wind. So give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us even now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thinking uh, back to my 20s. Uh, it was a Sunday evening at Pineland Baptist Church, the church where I grew up. And I had been invited to, to preach, and this was my first sermon ever. And I'm very, very grateful that we didn't record sermons back then. Uh, at least I hope they didn't. Uh, I, I remember very little about the content of that sermon or even the outline of it. I, I don't think I even saved it. Probably, <laughs> mercifully. Um, the only thing I do remember, it was very long, and I guess some of you are thinking, well, not much has changed. So, uh, But what I do remember is I preached this very text. I preached from this part of the Bible. And, and I do also remember, again, not knowing much of the content of that, I know I came off as uh, kind of rebukey, uh, something really a pre-seminary student should be careful to avoid. You know, what, is, what does he know? Uh, but I, I do know, though, that I chose that text, and I love this text, because 
From my earliest days, uh, and, and even understanding the Lord's call upon my life to, to serve in pastoral ministry, I wanted my own church, I wanted the church in general, to avoid being likened to Laodicea. Now these letters that we've moved through in part of the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, They've been addressed to churches in real life situations in the waning days of the first century AD. They've written, been written down for, for the church to take as a warning. Not only those individual churches, but in fact all of the church in every time and in every place to take as a warning. So I will say this this morning, Laodicea is not unique. There have been many Laodiceas and no doubt there are many today. And my concern remains the same. O oh Lord, guard us from the sin of Laodicea. Now, someday, and we pray that it is soon, Jesus is going to return in, in power and glory. And he is going to be vindicated before all creation. And his faithful church will share in that glory. So what we want to do this morning is take the warnings from this part of the scripture and also take the affirmations. We'll take these to heart so that we will be prepared for that day. That's why they've been written down. So I want to organize this this morning just for my own sake of kind of providing some structure here. Organize this under four headings and they just fell out of the text to me as I got thinking about how to divide this up and talk about it this morning. So here's my headings. Four, the authority. That's the first thing I want to focus on. Next, the diagnosis. Third, the remedy. And finally, the glory. Four words, authority, diagnosis, remedy, and glory. So let's begin with the authority. The authority. I saw a news story last week. Perhaps you saw it. It was about a property owner in Washington State. Uh, they have a rental house. Uh, I think it was a, a woman who had a rental house. It had been taken over by squatters. Now, I think as a result of certain COVID laws in that, state's rent, uh, that state, renters were exempted from payments. And, and the owner had not received anything since that uh, proclamation was made. And now law, law enforcement had removed some 30 people and charged them with all kinds of crimes, drug-related and theft and things like that. She changed the locks, but the next day they just showed back up again, broke the locks, and, and took up residence again. Now, I think no matter who you are, whether you're a renter or an owner of a property, I, th I think you get that a morally responsible person would understand the great injustice of that situation. And the fundamental question that comes to my mind is, who owns the property? Who is the one who has authority to divine, define the terms of occupation? The rent. It matters. Well, in our Bible text this morning, Jesus speaks and declares his own authority over the church in Laodicea. And indeed, he, he declares that authority over all churches in every time and in every place. Now, it should go without saying, but the Bible says it, but it should go without saying that, that what Jesus said, being all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me, that's Matthew 28, it, it should seem, and it would seem, by the works of this church and, in fact, all of the seven churches, that, indeed, some had forgotten whose church it was. And so I, I take it at the beginning of this section, and, in fact, all of the sections, Jesus, all of these letters to the churches, Jesus is effectively establishing who he is. He's establishing his authority. Addressing this to the angel, the messenger, the, the pastor of the local church, that representative. And in this case, the church in Laodicea. And he begins by saying, the words of the Amen. Now, the word Amen, we use it to, to punctuate our prayers, don't we? But it, it's a word that is kind of moved across from beginning in the Hebrew, just maintained intact. It's been carried into the Greek, and, and we use it in English. It made its way into Latin as well. Many other languages have a similar sounding word. It simply means true, true, or truly. Jesus is the truth. 
So he's the word. These are the words of the one who is truth, the amen. And, and he, he goes on to further describe himself, the faithful and true witness. Almost synonymous expressions. And really what that does is it echoes what John first heard in his own vision of, of Jesus, right? From, from Revelation 1, 5. He's the faithful witness. His words. So he's going to speak and his words are trustworthy. You can count on them. And he adds to that. He adds to his authority by saying as the one who is the beginning of God's creation. Again, adding another dimension to his authority. He asserts here that he is the origin. The one through whom all things were made. In fact, this is what John says in his, in his gospel. Without him was not anything made that was made. John 1, 3. And so being the amen, being the faithful witness, being the one who is the origin of all things created, he has established his authority and he says, I know. I know. Now, now before we get to the diagnosis, I, I think we, I, want, I want us to pause and just think about Jesus' authority as it relates to to the church, as it relates to the local church. There are many so-called churches, gatherings of people that claim to be disciples of Jesus. That if we were thinking about them, I think they are living like squatters. They are illegitimately occupying Jesus' church. So, I want to reestablish from the scriptures what Jesus' authority is over the church. And, and I want to do that because oftentimes the way in which people think about church and the local assembly of believers is that, well, this is just something we decided to do. There's just a bunch of people got together, hey, let's do a church. It isn't a human initiative. Yes, it involves human activities to say, let's organize, but, but it's one that is divinely Divinely directed. I'll remind you what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He said this in response to Peter's confession. That he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, he said it to Peter, but he said it to all of his disciples who were there. And he told them that he would build the church on the very confession of people who actually believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said he'd build the church on that foundation. That's what the church is. So to confess that Jesus is the Christ is to affirm that he is the singular anointed one, the Messiah, the one promised of God since the beginning of the scriptures. Since the beginning of man's rebellion, he's the one who has been promised. He is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. He is the offspring of Abraham through whom all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. That he is the forever priest in the order of Melchizedek. That he is the greater prophet like Moses from among the Israelites. That he is the forever king descended from Judah of the house and lineage of David. And no, no, not only that, but he is the son of of the living God. The preeminent son. As the, as the creed says. Some of you know this. Very God. A very God. Begotten. Not made. Of one essence. With the father. So a true confession. Of the church. In light of that. In light of who he is. Must include. Obedience to Jesus. As he commanded. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. So what that means is, is those who profess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, in a, in a very true sense, they take obedience to all of the scriptures to be required. And about the scriptures, Jesus said, not one iota, not one punctuation mark would pass away from them. Now, I get this focus because Jesus is establishing his authority 
over Laodicea, but really over all of the, the churches and over us. And, and, and thinking about this, that there are many churches today, we read about them in the news, and the ones that have made the news, okay, I'll just, the Anglican Communion, Church of England, United Methodists, very divided over some hot-button cultural issues, right? Well, we read about them, and, and if you were to ask their leadership, who's, who's the head of this church? Well, in the Church of England, they might say the Archbishop of Canterbury, but if you really pressed him, they would probably say, well, Christ is the head of the church. But then if you were asked them to ask them about the recent cultural capitulations, well, you know what they are. It would seem to me that they have concluded that, well, I know Jesus is the head of the church, but I, I, we, we think he's a little out of touch. We, we think perhaps that his prophets and apostles, you know, they didn't really understand today's culture. And perhaps they are certain that, that Jesus needs to be interpreted through a contemporary lens. And that doing that somehow that the Lord Jesus would be pleased with them. It, it's important, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we understand who is the authority of the church. Jesus established it with Laodicea. He established it with Ephesus and Smyrna. Thyatira and Philadelphia. And Jesus establishes it here. And we may want one thing or another to be true. But we have to submit ourselves under Jesus' word, the word of God. Well, from Laodicea, looking at them, we can conclude that their somehow, their confession that Jesus is the Christ, somehow didn't match their works. And I think that they were behaving in such a way as that they forgot what it meant that it's Jesus' church. He said to them, I know your works. I know your works. And Jesus knows our works. And as we think about this and as we're moving through this passage of Scripture, are we, are we confident that he is pleased? Now, to that question, it's not hard to find out, okay? Because he explains it a few verses later. But first, we're going to look at, at his diagnosis of what's wrong with Laodicea. So we'll get to the diagnosis. It's my second heading. One of my uh, first part-time jobs was working for a catering company. I loved that job. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, a lot of late nights, but my job in general was to arrive at the kitchen at the beginning of my shift. And I was to gather everything needed, uh, table linens, serving dishes, beverages, and all of the prepared food. So the chef would have it all ready, and I would load it into my delivery van. I'd drive it to the venue, unload it, and really help set up for the event. And I would just be available to all of those, the people in charge of the event, the catering manager, just do whatever they told me to do and just wait until the event was over and then load it all up and drive back. But one of the perks of the job, one of the perks of the job is that we could eat anything that we wanted after the party. Anything we wanted. Just help yourself. They often threw it away. They didn't really save much. So if there was something left over, have at it. I have one unforgettable and really unfortunate memory of helping myself to some leftover pastries. Once I loaded my van, um, I proceeded to eat not one or two, not four, but six chocolate eclairs that I'd stuffed under the seat of my van. Now, needless to say, the sight of one makes me ill. <laughs> I think I learned an important lesson in gluttony, okay? Now, maybe you've had a similar experience of an aversion to food. Maybe it was attached to an illness you had, and I won't go into any detail where the, the sight of something or, or the, the taste of something just makes us sick. Well, well, in our text, we see here that Jesus has an aversion to the church at Laodicea. He says, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold... I will spit you out of my mouth. I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, he, he could have said, 
you make me sick. That sounds harsh, but that's the sense. I, I can't tolerate this. I've got an aversion. Now, why this assessment? Why is Jesus giving this assessment? In what sense were they lukewarm? And will we see the explanation in verse 17? For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Well, let's talk about that city of Laodicea, the, the, the church there. What, what was that like? Well, it's located, of course, in Asia Minor in this kind of circle around in, in that section. All of the churches kind of in a, in a pattern of a circle. So it's south and east of Philadelphia we dealt with last week. It's in close proximity to uh, Colossae and Heriopolis. And some historians say that there were hot and cold springs very nearby. Now, where else do we hear about Laodicea in Scripture? The Apostle Paul noted to the Colossians that one Epaphras, who had been imprisoned with Paul, had actually ministered in Laodicea. So we know that from Philippians 1.23. Paul, the apostle, also instructed that his letter to the Colossians, which we have, was to be read in Laodicea, and that the letter to the Laodiceans, which has been lost, was to be read in Colossae. So what this implies is, a, I guess, a close relationship really between the two churches. Again, they were in very close proximity to one another. So that's what we know about them from Scripture. From other sources, we know from history, that they had a thriving wool industry. And what that did was it brought a great deal of wealth to the area. And they, so here's just an example of the evidence of that wealth. In AD 62, the city was completely destroyed by an earthquake. Now, that might leave them devastated, but quite remarkably, they entirely rebuilt the city without any help from Rome. They had the resources just to put it back up. So there's a, a testimony to their vast material resources. So that's what we know from history. And, and you can kind of see that perhaps some of the things that, that Jesus is saying to them relate to circumstances where they were. So Jesus is saying, look, Laodicea, you're, you're not refreshing like a cold drink of water. And you're not cleansing or healing like a hot spring. But you're lukewarm. You're tepid and you don't drink tepid water it's useless it's offensive you're offensive Laodicea and it's because they thought they were rich needed nothing again the wealth of the textile industry there the wool they thought they had it all you know when somebody asks you how you're doing the answer is I'm good I'm good Someone asked Laodicea, how are you doing? Got everything we need. Doing fine. Got everything. Money in the bank. But Jesus says, look, you're, you're spiritually wretched. You're spiritually poor. You are blind and naked. And maybe you have all of these resources, but you really got nothing. All of their wealth could not sustain them spiritually. All of their textiles could not cover their nakedness. And to boot, they were... They were unable to see their own condition, and so they were blind. So I just take it that they were simply self-sufficient, that they were proud and complacent. We're good. And all of that is the opposite of what they should have been. Now, thinking about self-sufficiency, I'll say this, and I, I think it's true. It's a great temptation for churches even today. And so... As I thought about this, I just thought about ways a church, temptations even for us to be complacent. How does a church deal with finances? Now, members, you who read the financial reports and I spend time looking at them, you know that we have a reserve fund. Now, of course, we want to be wise. Right? We want to be good stewards. But you know, there's a limit to what we should save. Sitting on a big pile of cash as a church, I don't know that that's the right thing to do. And we don't sit on a big pile of cash. 
But I would say this, heaven help us if we ever amass such a pile of cash or budget in such a, a conservatively, uh, conservative way that we don't ever trust God for bold visions. Now on the positive side, and I think the Lord helped us in this, I loved the attitude that our members had. This is three years ago, I guess. We approved that budget and we, just after we finished building this addition. And we proposed a, a partnership with Center Baptist Church by, by funding a good chunk of their pastor's salary, which we continue to do so today. It's a big chunk of, of our mission giving. But I remember back then to the discussion around it. I mean, it passed and we, we did it. But there were some who really said, this is, this is too risky, way, way too risky. But, you know, by God's grace, we, we took on the risk because it was God's money. And I think in the end, we accomplished a great commission objective of supporting another gospel work. And I still think, looking back on that, it's one of the best things we ever did. And I would say this, I, I'd love to do that again. I'd love to fund a church plant. I think it's a good place to be. Again, not to be unwise, and these are leadership decisions that we'll have to make, and, and I'm not even pronouncing anything about what, what I'm going to say, but... I don't ever want us to sit in a big pile of cash when we can bless someone else or do something somewhere, support another missionary, fund a church plant or fund a revitalization. We should never be in a position to think we are safe because of what we've got in the church bank account. Right? Trusting in material resources instead of trusting in, in the Lord, even, even for ministry purposes, is idolatry. Jesus said this. Again, it's where your primary trust is, right? Jesus said this. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what is a risk as well for the, the church as a collective? It's also, brothers and sisters, a risk for anyone who professes to know Christ. And I'm sure you're familiar with Jesus' parable of the sower. If not, he, he explained it. There was seed cast, and it landed in four places. And the seed in Jesus' parable was the word of God sown on different kind of soils, different places, okay? Initially, it was the hard path. Then there was the shallow soil with rocks in the soil underneath, so it wasn't very deep. There was soil with thorns and briars growing there. And there's finally good soil. That thorny soil. The third one in his explanation, he likened to those who profess to know Christ, but they just can't let go of trusting in wealth. And here's, here's what he says. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfaithful. I'm not preaching against saving I'm not preaching against wise stewardship. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just saying, what are you trusting? What are you trusting for tomorrow? Is it your bank account or are you trusting in the Lord? As a church, what are we trusting? We'll be okay because we have a reserve fund or are we going to keep our focus on Christ and he'll sustain us? Well, that was the, the diagnosis the remedy. That's where we get to next. Now, some here have long-term illnesses. And you live with that. It's uncured. They can't find a treatment. You've been to lots of doctors. And it's been a faith-testing journey. And we pray regularly for one another in that regard. But I can't help but thinking that some of you have had this thought. Oh, Oh, for one simple medical fix, just like a pill, a surgery that would just, just take care of it and be restored to full health. Long for that, right? A remedy. Well, what do you do about a sick church? What do you do about Laodicea? This really applies, this remedy applies to any church, right? 
The church is making Jesus sick because the church is sick. But the, the remedy here that he provides is surprisingly, surprisingly simple. First, you have to know what matters most of all, right? And so part of the remedy is to find true riches in Christ. And look what it says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to appoint, anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus says, buy from me. Not, not with money. No, the price is faith. Genuine trust in Christ. So here's the exhortation. You don't need to be wretched, pitiable, poor in Christ. In Christ, there is pure gold refined by fire. I realize the way I said that, I put the emphasis in the wrong place, right? You do not need to be wretched, pitiable, and poor. In Christ, <laughs> there's the riches, right? And he's saying, buy pure gold refined by fire. You understand the, the, the refining process of any precious metal, right? You put heat to it, and, and the junk, the dross kind of floats to the top. You skim that off. This is the gold refined by fire. This is what Jesus has. He has this rich, richness in him. And he says, look, you don't need to be naked. There's a dazzling white garment for you. And what is that dazzling white garment? Well, that represents the very righteousness of Christ imputed to you, given to you through your trust in him. And you know what? I think you know what, that, what happened at the cross, right? If you've looked to him in faith, if you look to Christ in faith, when you look to him, said, that's for me. He took the record of your sin upon himself and he died in your place for that sin and he left that sin in the tomb. But in exchange... For your sin, he gave you a white robe of his own righteousness. He clothed you in his perfection and his goodness and his beauty. That's yours. Jesus says, that's what I have for you. Buy that. Or, understanding the picture here, trust me. This is what you have. And you don't need to be blind. There's a solve to, to anoint your eyes so that you can truly see your own desperate need. But in comparison, to see the eternal glory of Jesus. As it says in 2 Corinthians, He has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The mark of true faith in Christ the mark of true faith in Christ is that you see Christ himself for the treasure that he is. I'll just give you a smattering from the New Testament. Romans 11, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, the riches of his grace, Ephesians 1.7, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, Ephesians 1.18, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.7, the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8, the riches of his glory, Ephesians 3.16 and Philippians 4.19, the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, Colossians 2.2. In Christ, we are infinitely wealthy. And so when Jesus taught on what you do and what you think about and what you treasure, he said this in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. He's saying, look, don't be short-sighted. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. If you, if you put your, all your investments in this stuff, like it's going it's to crumble. Somebody could take it. It'll rust. It'll rot. But rather, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves. And you might think of it this way. It's already there. Value what's been given to you and, and spend your earthly resources on whatever that is. 
Well, how do you lay up treasures in heaven? A few verses later, Matthew 6, Jesus says this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's how you lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. It's like, that's my focus. There's Jesus, the kingdom's king. He's in charge. He is righteous. I want him to rule all things, including my own life. That's seeking his will, seeking his glory, his purposes. What you do with your time and your abilities, your treasure, it's for his glory. So part of knowing now, part of knowing that Christ is your treasure, is then seeing as the alternative that any, any, anything else that you'd seek to find confidence in, that is sin. So part of the remedy here is the repent of your sin. Now, how does the church repent? Now, understand what's going on here. He says you are wretched, pitiable, blind, poor, naked. Probably not in the same order, but you get that. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, what I, I take here is that this is not a, not a, a judgment, but a warning. It says, you, you make me sick. But in a sense, you need not. And so the rebuke really is the, the, the discipline from the Lord Jesus that ultimately leads to repentance. It's a very harsh statement, but I think its intention here is corrective. And maybe, maybe to this church in Laodicea, there's some other kind of pain that would drive them there. But this word, this harsh word to them is part of Jesus' corrective plan. And what he does then is he affirms his, his good intentions for them. He says this, look, verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove. That's reproof. <laughs> he just reproved them. Those whom I love, I reprove in discipline. And the way out, be zealous. Repent. Treasure Christ and repent of your sin. That repentance, brothers and sisters, that's that attitude before God that you know you've fallen short. It, it's an attitude where you effectively agree with God about your own moral condition. That God is perfect. And that we are just flawed. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's just that acknowledgement. Like, I don't measure up. And there are things that I know I do that are sinful. And there are, I'm sure, a host of, whole host of other things that I haven't even a clue about. Because sin so permeates our character that we don't even know the extent of our sin and sinfulness. And repentance is that attitude before God to say, I have nothing in me that's good. So I throw myself at your mercy. Now, repentance, that attitude... And faith. Those are distinguishable, but they're really inseparable aspects of what it means to treasure Christ. If you treasure Christ but have no sense of repentance, you really haven't understood the treasure of Jesus. See, if you don't see your own sin as offensive against God, if you don't have a desire to truly turn away from it, you really haven't grasped what God has done for you in Christ. If you don't have a desire to turn away from your sin, you have not understood the gospel. So repentance. Treasure Christ. Repent of your sin. Now going forward then, how does the church avoid this pitfall of self-reliance uh, self and, and complacency? How does the church avoid that? That's a third part of this. Welcome Jesus. Welcome him. So very simple. Jesus says this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he, and he with me. See that picture of beautiful fellowship? Just open the door. We're going to sit down. We're going to have a meal together. And I don't know about your household, but one of the most important times of of a family fellowship is the meal. So much happens at the dinner table. So much of importance. So much of understanding one another. 
pass the potatoes, please. <laughs> you know, we, we, have, we have ways of interacting with one another. Important conversations happening are happening around the table. And Jesus says, look, I want to just let me in. Let me into that space. We're going to fellowship together. Now, this verse, and there's been a lot of paintings around it. I'm sure you've seen those. They've been used as a kind of an evangelistic appeal, as if Jesus is making this offer to save you, but you just have to open the door of your heart. Now, that's, I'll say this, that's not how salvation works, and that's another sermon, so I won't deal with that today. The Laodicean church, they're an assembly of believers. They're not unbelievers that Jesus is saying, please, please, please let me in. No. They're already professed to know Christ. And he's saying, you've left me outside. You think you've got it all together. You, you think you need nothing at all. But you've forgotten me. And when you leave Jesus outside the church, that's offensive to him. All they need to do, open the door and welcome him in. What that means is they have to put Jesus at the center of everything they do. So if we think about the point of the church, what's the point of the local church? It's, it's Jesus gathering people who confess him as the Christ. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. And we think about what's the objective of preaching? Well, it's, it's lifting up Jesus so that he draws people to himself. That's John 12, 32. And, and why do we sing songs? Does it make us feel good? No, it's so that through Jesus... We're continually offering a sacrifice of praise to God. Hebrews 13, 15. And why do we pray? Well, we pray because in the name of Jesus, we ask the Father to supply absolutely everything needed to fulfill the very command that he's given to us to make disciples. And if we think beyond that, what is the content of our witness? Ultimately, it is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, the message about which we should not be ashamed because it is the very power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. As you can see, Jesus is everything to the local church. And we welcome him in when we make him the center of all that we do. You see, without Christ at the center of the church, the entire enterprise of the church, whether that's Laodicea or some other church, or in fact here at Overland Hills, without Christ at the center, what we would do would be absolutely pointless and an utter waste of time. And it would be offensive to Jesus. A church where Christ is not at the center church where Jesus is outside that makes him sick. But we're counseled to buy the gold, right? We're counseled to put our focus on Christ, and so we will. Finally, that leaves the glory. The glory. Now, I, I've never seen this myself, but, but Kathy has told me about this. She's been there with her sister and brother. If you take a tour of Buckingham Palace... You can go into the throne room. I actually looked it up on the internet. You can actually do one of those kind of virtual tours and move the mouse around and look at the room. Uh, in that room, it's, it's very red. There are two chairs on an elevated platform, but it's been, it's been cordoned off with the velvet ropes. I know you can imagine it. Maybe you've been there. Now, it would be great if, if you were visiting and and I, I think there might've been some hijinks with Kathy and her brother, but I, I won't go into that when they were there. Um, it would be great to be able to go into that throne room and, and have a seat and get a picture taken, right? But you're not allowed. The velvet ropes. You're not supposed to go there. Why? You can walk in the building. What's it with the chair? Well, the throne is not merely a seat for the monarch. Queen Elizabeth never let anyone but Philip sit there. And I'm quite sure that no one but Camilla will sit there with King Charles, right? That throne represents authority. It represents 
glory. It represents the purposes of the one who rightly occupies it. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. That's what's, that's the glory. And he explains, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. That's what's being given. That's what happens to the one who conquers, the one who overcomes. And I'll just remind you, Jesus conquered sin through his own suffering and dying in our place. And he rose again to triumph over, over sin's power. And now, the Bible tells us he is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him, 1 Peter 3, 22. And so for all who look to Christ in faith, for all who recognize his authority, all who come to him in humble repentance and faith, these are the ones who conquer. And he grants, he grants to sit on his throne with him forever. And we understand this, brothers and sisters. The one who gets to sit there with Jesus, that's, that's not through any merit of our own. But it's simply because, as it says in Colossians 3, 3, that our lives have been hidden with Christ in God. But there, in Christ, we will, for eternity, enjoy every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What we've been promised in Ephesians 1, 3, that they're there already for us even now. We will fully possess them when Christ returns. And just as it, as it says in, in, in Romans 8, 30, what Christ has done for us and, and opening your eyes to see him for who he is. Because he called you, those whom he called, he justified. He made you righteous in his sight. And those whom he justified, as if it's already done, he also glorified. It's a done deal. You can count on it. That is waiting for you. Between now and then, it's a little bit of a struggle, isn't it? For some of us, it's more difficult than for others. And for the church in general, there may be seasons in history when it would be particularly difficult. The warning for us is not to become complacent, not to trust ourselves, but to keep looking to Christ. But whether it's difficult, whatever varying degrees of difficulty you have, it's going to be a glorious day. And I was reminded just as I was pondering this uh, of an old hymn, and I've forgotten who the uh, author is. But maybe it'll be familiar to the older ones among us. When all my labels and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, just to be near the dear Lord I adore, will through the ages, that's on for eternity, be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me. Oh, that will be glory for me. It repeats a couple times. When by his grace I shall look on his face, that will be glory. Be glory for me. We hold on to the hope of that. Now, Jesus said that he would build the church on the foundation stone of people who truly confess that he is the Christ. And, and through history, some churches like the Ephesians, well, they would need to return to their first love. Throughout history, and maybe even now, like Smyrna, there would be churches who would face persecution even unto death. There will be other churches like Pergamum that will get pulled into idolatry and sexual immorality. They'll need to repent. Others like Thyatira, they're going to tolerate some false teachers about which they'll need to repent. Some like Sardis have a great reputation, but Jesus says, look, you're dead. They'll need to repent of that. There are a few faithful ones who feel so beaten down and weak like Philadelphia. And there are a host of others 
like Laodicea that are self-sufficient and complacent. What these letters are, they're called to faithfulness. They're not a statement of doom. Yes, they describe some of them very dire circumstances in the churches. But the very fact that the rebukes exist and the affirmations follow up tells us that Jesus intends to sustain his bride until he returns. And so it will be fulfilled. As Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will by no means prevail against it. And brothers and sisters, that's the good news that we hold on to. And the Spirit says, the Lord Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I invite you to pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the rebukes. We take them as warnings so that we don't go there. And God, we know that the remedy and the, the thing that protects us from being like Laodicea, or in fact, like any of the other churches who are in error, Father, it is not our own will. It is not our own any qualities in us. But this one simple fact that we keep Jesus himself at the center. So Lord Jesus, we're saying together, we want you to be the center. We want your gospel to be always on display. We always want to lift you up so that you draw people to yourself. And Father and Holy Spirit, would you strengthen us in our inner beings so that if we do face trials and difficulties, that we will be strengthened to hold on to the day when Christ returns in glory. When, by his grace, that day when we get to look on his face, hold us to that day and keep us faithful so that Christ may be glorified now in us and throughout all eternity. We ask it in his name. Amen.